0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 50, and it's the second part of a two-part series, episode 49 and episode 50. It's the last two episodes as we put the keys in the ignition and head out of Dealey Plaza. We will be in the world of forensics next. Well, yep, as I said in the last episode, I found a couple of other things that I left in the hotel room. A couple more stories to pack in and enjoy before we get on our way. Before we get on to today's episode, I have to do a small wander, a small tribute and shout out to my good friend. Chris Schott. Are any of you campers? Usually it's sort of a love-hate relationship with camping. I grew up going quite often as a younger person. I think I've told the story where my parents used to like to go camping and they had a pop-up camper. People really like camping or they really don't like camping. Some folks try it once and never again. The reason I bring up camping is that when you're out camping, there is always something you don't have uh, with you, and you just need to improvise. You may not have quite the right equipment, but you've got to get a job done sometimes. So whatever's in the toolbox or packed in with a tent or with the duffel bag, it's going to have to do. My point here is that sometimes things get identified as a tool in a certain circumstance, even when their original intention was for use as something else. So it is, even with my podcast. As I just mentioned, I have a very good friend back in Milton, Georgia, and his name is Chris Schott. Chris is also a really avid fan of the podcast, and we occasionally exchange texts about the podcast. Well, one day Chris is telling me how much he likes the podcast and can't wait for the next episode to come out. And then tells me one of the reasons why he likes it so much. Well, it turns out that my podcast voice happens to have a pretty unique impact on Chris. It puts him to sleep faster than a hypnotist at a Barnum & Bailey event. Well, there you have it. There's this one thing the podcast is designed to do, and that is to advance the ball a little bit on what everybody knows about the JFK assassination. (laughs) And then there's this other thing, uh, if you've got insomnia. Just listen to my podcast. So one night, Chris told me one of the funniest stories. I think he started about 10 o'clock in the evening after settling in on a Sunday night and getting ready for the week ahead. And he proceeded to put on one of my podcasts and then fell asleep within the first 10 minutes. You know, basically, he woke up an hour later to see that it was uh, concluded. Uh, he tried it again and proceeded to fall asleep again within about 10 minutes. Perhaps maybe woke up in the wee hours again Noticing that, again, he had missed most of it, rewinding it again and starting over. I think either three or four times was a charm for him that night. But the important thing, though, is that my podcast is now a preferred provider when it comes to the treatment of insomnia. Who would have guessed? Apparently, I can put you to sleep in less than 10 minutes with this voice. Well, honestly, Chris isn't the only one that has said something like that to me about the podcast. He's the only one, though, that is actually admitted to falling asleep during the middle of these episodes. Somehow, he really must stay at it because I know he listens to every one of them and almost immediately when they come out. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for being a great friend and thanks for being a great fan of the podcast, too. And thanks for showing us how to use something in our duffel bag to cure an age-old problem. Oh, well, that was a fun wonder. Let's turn our attention now to the story of the Three Tramps. These guys are campers of sorts, aren't they? This story has more interesting substance to it, even though at the end of the day, there is little controversy that these men were not identifiable. Indeed, they were. If there is any continuing controversy around the tramps, it's that the thread still leads back to some dubious circumstances that, to this day, still generate at least some lingering doubts about the truth related to this matter. So here we go. The story of the three tramps. Probably the most famous story, and we will address it, whether or not Howard Hunt, the famous CIA operative and Watergate conspirator, was one of these tramps. And of course, the other now famous story is whether or not actor Woody Harrelson's father, Charles Harrelson, was one of those tramps. Harrelson's father was a bad dude, and there is no doubt that his M.O. could have easily put him in the middle of all of this. But there is no credible evidence that truly links Harrelson to this crime. And on at least one occasion, he was interviewed and vehemently denied his involvement. But let's all remember that criminals don't confess their crimes. Well, most of the time, anyway. But stranger things have happened during the JFK assassination story. So let's get into some of the details about these tramps. And just remember, this is the very last episode from Dealey Plaza and its witnesses before we move on to the other parts of the story. Now, this time, if I've left a toothbrush or a shoe, then I will be off to the store at the next stop. Dream.
1: So they say For the fools And they'd Have to wait Peace Like the silent dove Should be flying But it's only just begun Like Columbus In the olden
0: The story of the three tramps sounds like a fable. As simple as this one is on the surface, it gets more involved in a hurry. For my friends in North Carolina, think of a mountain lake with lots of spidering waterways and coves. There are a lot of places to go, explore, and then accidentally get lost in. That is the essence of the family tree related to the three tramps. I will start by saying this. It all starts with seven, and only seven, rather pristine photographs. Photographs of three men who were rounded up just minutes after President Kennedy was shot. The chain of events was logical, and we know it well by now after hearing this story over and over in so many episodes. Here is what I mean. Immediately after the shots rang out, the crowds followed the trail of the assassins, and there was plenty of reason for the crowds and the police to make their way up the grassy knoll, and from there head into the railroad yard parking lot and eventually continue searching north toward the railroad tracks. We know that generally, and we have heard pieces of this action during my storytelling in various episodes, and that is what they did, both civilians and authorities. It was logical to think that if someone had fired a shot from somewhere in the railroad yard, say behind the picket fence, that they would have torn off and headed for cover in a hurry around the sea of railroad cars that existed right there behind the parking lot. So obviously, the authorities headed up there and there were specific instructions to search all the railroad cars in the yard, although there are varying accounts on the thoroughness of that search by the authorities and which railroad boxcars they actually did search. One story has Lee Bowers giving the tip to the police, communicating to them that he saw exactly where these men were hiding. However, such a statement was not included in any of his official Warren Commission testimony, nor in his sheriff's office affidavits. So it's not clear about this idea that Bowers may have directed them. It's really not clear if it has any validity at all. It does have implications, though. If Bowers did see these men move through the rail yard, It raises the question of whether they had greater involvement, and he probably would have seen exactly what that involvement was, watching from his perch in the railroad tower. But, clearly, he hadn't said anything about it in his official statements and testimony to the Warren Commission. Hmm. But, regardless of how it came about, the Dallas police managed to come across some characters during their search of the railroad yard. And this story is about three of them that were found basically hiding in a boxcar. They were immediately taken into custody and they were marched from where they were in the railroad yard through Dealey Plaza and eventually over to the sheriff's office for administrative processing. As they were escorted by policemen through Dealey Plaza, they easily caught the attention of the swarm of reporters that were already in the plaza in the aftermath of the shooting. So let's start with the testimony of Dallas policeman D.V. Harkness as he spoke to the Warren Commission in 1964. He was interviewed by our now well-known commission lawyer, David Bellin. He would describe it this way to the commission. Well, we got a long freight that was in there and we pulled some people off of there and took them to the station. Mr. Bellin, you mean some transients? Tramps and hobos that were on the freight car? Yes, sir. Then what did you do? That was all my assignment because they shook two long freights down that were leaving, to my knowledge, in all the area there. We had several officers working in that area. Do you know whether or not anyone found any suspicious people of any kind or nature down there in the railroad yard? Yes, sir. We made some arrests. I put some people in. Were these uh, what you call hobos or tramps? Yes, sir were all those questioned? Yes, sir. They were taken to the station in question. Any guns of any kind found? Not to my knowledge, the tramps were marched to the sheriff's office via a route that led through Dealey. We'll stop there. And as a result of that march through Dealey Plaza came the seven pristine pictures of the tramps. And guess who got a chance to photograph these three men as they were taken across the plaza? Yep, you guessed right, the Dallas Morning News, the Dallas Times-Herald, and actually the third would be a little harder to guess, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Each of these three newspapers photographed these three men as they were marched away under police escort near the Texas School Book Depository shortly after the assassination. Now, at that moment, these men, of course, were not yet known as the Three Tramps, But later, you heard Sergeant Harkness in his official testimony slap that moniker on, and it stuck. Well, I am going to wander again for just a second. A few episodes ago, you heard the story of my grandfather on the railroads. So I guess it's fitting that I tell one more generality about another group of men who made their life around the railroads. And exactly how did this come to be? Stop for just a second and imagine a world around 1860, When the country was beginning to race west in America, and the railroads were how we were getting there, and that world stayed in place with a slow assault on the geography of the land to the west of the Mississippi, an assault that took place in a steady order, for it would not be long until the golden spike was placed in the ground and east would meet west. Now, almost naturally, the railroads would be the only real source of longer distance travel that a migrant in that time frame could undertake. The railroads forbid it, of course, but they had no real way of stopping it, and so men who might first be dubbed migrant workers were eventually dubbed hobos, as they would dash on the train, lucky enough sometimes to be above and inside of a boxcar, in a place where they might actually survive the trip but not always. You see, in those days, many of the men who rode the rails just got low. In other words, they found themselves intertwined in the lower chassis of those boxcars, a chassis that was comprised of metal struts or bars that provided structural support for the wooden boxcars that rested on top of them. It was a convenient place to slip into, and sometimes that put these men in the position of riding dangerously close to the ground and possibly subject to the perils of riding that way. The ballast on the track, you know, those big stones that are all around a railroad tie and help keep it in place, well, those rocks would kick up and act like a small missile. Or items would be left on the tracks. It was a real risk of loss of life or limb. Nothing you or I would have done in our day. But still, it was commonplace then. It's easy to understand why this was a widespread practice in 1860, given no other alternative. Now, fast forward to the Great Depression, and once again, rail riding by a small subculture gained popularity in a period where so many people were going through hard times. Fast forward another 30 years later and wind up in 1963, and there was still remnants of it left on the rails. And a bit of those remnants were present right there in the railroad yard at Dealey Plaza. These kind of places were the last bastion of it in the country. Hobos were real, even in 1963. That's what makes it so interesting. I'm telling you, you can't make this stuff up. So let's get back to those seven incredible photos made mostly by high-end cameras and taken by professional photographers working for professional news agencies. Despite the fact that newsmen took them They did not get the early scrutiny that other assassination matters did in the early period after the Warren Commission findings were released and criticism began to mount. Many of the photos were close-ups with rather clear pictures of the faces of these men, making the idea of accurate identification seem rather routine. But remember, this is the story of the JFK assassination, and here is where fact is stranger than fiction. And in fairness, Not all the pictures were clear shots of the face and not all were that close up. They certainly weren't mug shots. Just enough ambiguity in those pictures to turn the whole thing into a mysterious element of the case. Who were these men? Those photos were a sleeping dog, really, just lying there quietly on the floor, largely unchallenged as a source of controversy in the assassination. Their involvement in the case first heats up through actions taken by Richard Sprague. Sprague was a consultant, and for all my friends and listeners in public accounting, Sprague worked for Tush Ross and ran their computer systems consulting practice. He became an assassination researcher and also, over time, one of the leading experts in the research community on photographic evidence related to the assassination. Sprague is said to have compiled these photographs and 1966 and 1967, and subsequently turned them over to Jim Garrison during Garrison's investigation of Clay Shaw. Between 1966 and 1969, he served as the photographic expert for the JFK investigation conducted by Garrison. Now, what Garrison did next with him is, again, where fact makes for a better storytell than fiction in the JFK assassination story. It was a chain of events, but a volunteer investigator working for Garrison on the case, Mort Saul, made an appearance on The Tonight Show. He made a reference to Garrison and basically looked at the audience and asked them if they wanted to hear directly from Garrison. The crowd response was overwhelming. Well, NBC and The Tonight Show seemed obliged, and it wasn't long afterward that Garrison got a telegram from The Tonight Show. So, they had invited him and he accepted. What happened the day of the taping of that Tonight Show episode is bizarre and really adds to the paranoia of anyone believing that the reach of the government, as well as its general influence, is deep, and certainly the case when it comes to the national media outlets in 1963. I'll digress for just a minute and tell a little bit of the story of that day. Garrison was scheduled to appear before a nationwide audience on the January 31, 1968 episode of The Tonight Show, but the high drama began several hours before the show's scheduled taping one afternoon. Right as Garrison showed up at the NBC studios, here's what happened. Almost immediately, Garrison was whisked into a room with three or four well-dressed men, who he assumed were NBC lawyers, and the pre-taping grilling began and lasted for several hours. By this time, Carson was apparently unsettled by Garrison's impending appearance, showing up for just a moment during the lawyer's interrogation of Garrison, in and out. You know, I wonder if he promoted the pre-taping review or whether Carson, as part of the NBC corporate bureaucracy, had to simply accept the heavy-handed approach that the network decided to serve up that day for Garrison. Once they took the stage for taping, more events began to unfold. It starts out how you might have guessed based on the pre-taping events. Carson stiffly interrogates Garrison using a list of questions that were undoubtedly prepared by NBC lawyers and undoubtedly designed to discredit Garrison in the investigation. Garrison wouldn't play along and decided to evade the discussion of Carson's scripted questions and finally, out of frustration, Carson asked him why the government would still be concealing evidence. Garrison believes he has to seize the moment, looking at Johnny and saying, Don't ask me. Ask Lyndon Johnson. You know he has to have the answer. And he opens his briefcase, pulling out pictures of these three men, the so-called tramps, holding them in the air for the cameras to focus on. Stunned, Carson immediately moves to prevent Garrison from showing the pictures, and as Garrison later described it, Carson lunged at his arm like a cobra, pulling it down violently so that the pictures were out of the camera's view. Carson lashed out, pictures like this don't show up on television. Despite that, Garrison kept going, answering, sure they do, the camera can pick this up, Carson kept at it again, yanking down Garrison's arm that was holding the pictures and again said sharply, no, they can't. For a third and final time, Garrison would try and hold up the pictures and the light on the broadcast camera would go red. The producer had stopped filming. Still undeterred and before Carson could react any more, Garrison in his booming voice would say, those arrested men you just saw were never seen again they all got away. No doubt Carson and NBC were spooked by Garrison's appearance. Were they worried that they might be sued and be held liable somehow if Garrison wrongly accused these men of murdering the president? Was it more sinister than that? Had someone high up in government gotten to the NBC executives and deliberately tried to quash his appearance or turn the show into a way to embarrass him? versus letting him have an objective moment on national television to tell the American public what he believed. Was the whole topic just too controversial to do anything but stay on script and stay away from anything that could bring a backlash to The Tonight Show? In a more far-out theory involving the military-industrial complex, was NBC's corporate parent, RCA, pressured and then put pressure on NBC? RCA was... Fairly involved in the production of various military equipment at the time. Whatever it was, they were dead set against Garrison having a forum to present anything objective on The Carson Show, and certainly anything controversial about the assassination was not going to be presented on The Carson Show. In terms of reasons, it was probably a mix of all of the above, and then some. For anyone who ever watched The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson was, for the most part, a conformist, Now, don't get me wrong. I love that show. I grew up with that show. But this was not a man that was going to wade into these kind of waters. No. Carson had too much to lose and not enough to gain on this one. All right, I'm done with that little wander. But the point is that on the night of January 31st, 1968, the Tramps became national figures known to just about everybody. Man, You may not have paid too much attention to who shot JFK, but who missed an episode of The Tonight Show? Hardly anybody. Well, at least hardly anybody I knew. Oh, and if you are doing the math, I was seven then, probably in bed well before 11 in those days, but Johnny was on for a long, long time, and I watched him for a long, long time when I was old enough to do so. Mostly with my dad before we all headed to bed. Those were great memories with my dad for sure. Thanks, Johnny. Let's fast forward to 1974 when two assassination researchers make it onto the scene. It's Alan J. Weberman and Michael Canfield. And these two gentlemen began comparing photographs of these three men to people they believed to be suspects involved in a conspiracy. Now, please do take note of the year. 1974. There was a lot going on in 1974. Watergate had occurred, Nixon had resigned over Watergate, and the Watergate burglars were now pretty famous dudes, particularly because a number of them were CIA guys. Their pictures were all over the papers. Well, Weberman and Canfield must have picked up the Washington Post and or the New York Times, and after getting a hold of the right publications, wound up just staring at those seven pristine photographs and a bunch of pictures of these now famous Watergate burglars, and I just bet that, for them, the light bulb went on without much effort. These two researchers concluded that two of the three tramps in the photos were Watergate burglars E. Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis. Oh my gosh, we're off to the races again. This time it's not The Tonight Show, but man, it's way more explosive. Well, comedian and civil rights activist Dick Gregory, uh, remember back to a previous episode when we discussed his involvement with Robert Groden and the Zapruder film showing? Well, Gregory helped bring national media attention to the allegations against Hunt and Sturgis in 1975. He did it after obtaining the comparison photographs from Weberman and Canfield, Immediately after obtaining those photographs, Gregory held a press conference and received considerable coverage, and his charges were reported in Rolling Stone and Newsweek. Frank Sturgis and Dan Carswell, a CIA agent, was allegedly arrested in Dealey Plaza, disguised as a tramp hiding in a railroad car behind the grassy knoll from where witnesses claimed to have heard gunshots. Well, all of this was sensational news at its highest right? Someone needs to investigate. So here comes the Rockefeller Commission, and they reported in 1975 that indeed they had investigated the allegation that Hunt and Sturgis, on behalf of the Central Intelligence Agency, participated in the assassination of Kennedy. The final report of that commission stated that witnesses who testified that the derelicts, as they were then called in the commission's official report, did bear a resemblance to Hunt or Sturgis. But those folks making such allegations were not shown to have any qualification in photo identification beyond that possessed by an average layman. That was a polite way to say, I don't want to believe what I am hearing and therefore you are not qualified to say it or something like that. Their report also stated that FBI agent Lindell L. Shainefeld, remember him from uh, our previous episodes regarding the Zapruder film? Well, they labeled Shainefeld a nationally recognized expert in photo identification and photo analysis. And of course, he was with the FBI Photographic Laboratory. Shainefeld had concluded from photo comparisons that none of the men were Hunt or Sturgis. Somehow, I just have a sneaking suspicion on this one when the Rockefeller Commission relies on the FBI to make this particular call. Well, the bottom line is that the Rockefeller Commission tried to dispel the theory that Hunt and Sturgis were involved for all the obvious reasons. Plus, let's face it, it wasn't necessarily compelling photographic matches for sure. Either way, Now, we let this issue age for five more years and even more sinister theories begin to pile up around the identity of these tramps and their involvement somehow in the assassination. So in 1979, the House Select Committee on Assassinations became very interested in resolving the topic of who these men were because, after all, identifying who they were to begin with Was key to determining whether this was a couple of innocent hobos riding the rails or whether these were men that were involved in something much more sinister. And remember, the Assassinations Committee initially, at least, had high hopes that more sophisticated analysis of the photographic evidence in the case would yield the answers that just weren't there in 1964. We know now that that did not turn out to be the case but it certainly was a lofty goal and they were determined to apply it with regard to the three tramps as well. So the House Select Committee on Assassinations reported that they had forensic anthropologists deployed on the project as well as other photographic experts and had again analyzed and compared the photographs of the tramps with those of Hunt and Sturgis, as well as with photographs of some new characters that researchers had begun to identify as possible matches for the men in the pictures. The committee looked at photographs of Thomas Valley, Daniel Carswell, and Fred Lee Christman. According to the committee, only Chrisman resembled any of the tramps, but the same committee determined that he was not in Dealey Plaza on the day of the assassination. Regarding Sturgis, there were other theories about him. We'll get to him in a separate More comprehensive episode when we get to the telling of the story of Oswald and his involvement with the CIA slash Cubans. Sturgis and Hunt both played central roles in the CIA's involvement in Cuba, including the Bay of Pigs matter, which is what makes this part so intriguing to most researchers. So, at this moment, a lot of people thought that the select committee's conclusions that Sturgis and Hunt were not involved. And that only Chrisman was not a definite rule out? Well, that it would have put to bed the allegations around who these three men were. But here is the thing. Ruling out somebody is way different than positively identifying who these guys were. And nobody had done that yet. Well, not yet. But hold on. Lots more is coming on this story. But let me stop for a minute. There are a few details that need to be told details that were the part of the incendiary beginnings of why this felt so suspicious to folks once they began to zero in on the tramps. First, the pictures of these three men show a casual walk through Dealey Plaza with a very casual set of Dallas police leading and following with shotguns in hand. The picture depicts anything but a serious and time-sensitive roundup of these men as possible suspects in the crime of the century. Oh, and yes, they were charged immediately under a category of detainment known as investigative arrest. And while these men were arrested by the Dallas police, they were sort of walked over to the sheriff's office for further booking. Highly unusual for that to happen. This process would almost never have occurred if a suspect had been picked up initially by the Dallas police. Under normal circumstances, they would have gone to the police station and not to the sheriff's office, even on that day. That is how it worked. So why? Why did that happen? But one thing is for sure. They were arrested. Only guess what? When folks went looking for the arrest records in the 1960s and even into the 1970s and through most of the 1980s and almost into the 1990s, These arrest records, well, they were nowhere to be found. Missing in action MIA. Oh, and it wasn't just the arrest record itself that was missing. It was also their mugshots and their fingerprints. It was as if they were entirely erased from the record. I'll get back to the arrest records in just a minute. Next There were over a dozen men in total arrested that afternoon in and around Dealey Plaza, including the Tramps, and they were all basically investigative arrests. People who were doing something suspicious or acting suspicious enough that the police decided to temporarily detain them in the aftermath of the shooting. Not surprising, right? But to release them after virtually no interrogation and no ability to recall them if circumstances subsequently developed that required their presence. I mean, this was the murder of the President of the United States. Of course, the biggest point of quandary that the conspiracy theorists picked up on was that all of these men appeared to be clean-shaven and well-dressed and with haircuts. And so, that just didn't fit the M.O. of a hobo hopping on a train and riding the rails. This fact alone would really fuel the conspiracy theorists, especially in the absence of positive identification of just who in the heck these three men really were. And there were some folks that looked at them and came to a different conclusion about how well coiffed they actually were. Our esteemed Professor McAdams was one of them, and he and his followers described the third tramp as (laughs) having been fired from a cannon through a Salvation Army thrift shop. Now that's funny right there. I I don't care what you say. Uh, As a side note, my dad used to say that when he saw something funny and he would laugh even heartier and draw into his trademark grin right afterward. That image stays with me today and it makes me laugh now. Even though the House Select Committee felt like they had done much to put the rumors to bed, Namely, by further confirming the ruling out of Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis through their forensic anthropology efforts, still the absence of a positive identification of these men over an extended period of years was like jet fuel to the conspiracy cause. Now, the story just keeps getting juicier. Oh, and those two pictures do look like Hunt and Sturgis. I don't care what you say. So, the truth is, That there was enough of an actual resemblance to the two men that conspiracy theorists were keeping the talk alive about it being those two guys. Even after the House Select Committee had formally concluded that the pictures of the three did not represent pictures of Hunt or Sturgis or even Valley or Carswell. Okay, fast forward about three years to September 1982. Remember Woody Harrelson? Now an incredibly popular actor, and for those of us old enough to remember, you might remember him for his time on the immensely popular show, Cheers. Or maybe more recently, in some very good and very scary movies. Well, guess what? His dad was a rather bad man. Many would say his dad was a contract killer, plain and simple. His name was Charles Harrelson. The story of Charles Harrelson is fascinating in and of itself, but I'll have to get to that later. If you want to know more about this incredibly interesting and doubly unsavory character, listen to a relatively new Spotify podcast, Son of a Hitman. It's very good, and it will enlighten you on this character. Well, in 1982, Charles was wanted for the murder of a federal judge, John H. Wood Jr. Charles Harrelson confessed to killing Wood, and in the same incident, he confessed to being involved in the shooting of President Kennedy, and he did this during a six-hour standoff with police, in which he was reportedly high on cocaine. Joseph Chagra, the brother of Jamil Chagra, testified during Harrelson's trial that Harrelson claimed to have shot Kennedy, and Harrelson even drew maps to show where he was hiding during the assassination. Not too many people believed the claim at the time, and certainly the FBI gave it no credence. But then again, what would you expect from them on this one? According to Jim Mars' 1989 book Crossfire, Harrelson is believed to be the youngest and tallest of the Tramps by many assassination researchers. Mars stated that Harrelson was involved with criminals connected to intelligence agencies and the military, and even went so far as to suggest that he was connected to Jack Ruby through Russell Douglas Matthews, a third party with links to organized crime who was known to both Harrelson and Ruby. Boy, this starts to get interesting, doesn't it? Now we have people claiming to have been involved in the killing of the president. As I said, you can't make this stuff up. Still, at this point, No positive identification of these three tramps, so the speculation and guessing game as to who they really are continues to proliferate within the conspiracy side of the assassination research community. Oh, and where are those police records? Still missing after all these years? Will they ever be found? Well, guess what? The next big break came when the Dallas City Council voted to release in 1989 all city records having to do with the assassination. Several years later, in about 1992 or so, journalist Mary LaFontaine, who was looking through those very records and discovered the arrest records for these three men. Arrest records that corresponded with the three tramps. The three men identified were Harold Doyle, John Forrester Gedney, and Gus Abrams. And of course, the $64,000 question was, were these the real deal? Was this the true identification of those tramps? According to the arrest records, the three men were taken off a boxcar in the railroad yards right after President Kennedy was shot, detained as investigative prisoners, described as unemployed and passing through Dallas, then released four days later. An immediate search for the three men by the FBI and others was prompted by an article by Ray and Mary LaFontaine that appeared on the front page of the February 9, 1992, Houston Post. Less than a month later, the FBI reported that Abrams was dead and that interviews with Gedney and Doyle revealed no new information about the assassination. This was a potentially juicy story, and the FBI's assessment that there was no new information was not going to satisfy an investigative reporter, and particularly one from a media outlet that was not necessarily shying away from the controversy of the Kennedy case. And by this time in life, there were more than a few. Ray and Mary LaFontaine, working for the tabloid TV program A Current Affair, set out to find Harold Doyle, whose address was listed on the arrest record as Red Jacket, West Virginia. The trail led from West Virginia to Amarillo, Texas, where the LaFontaine's found one of Doyle's former neighbors, who remembered him talking about his arrest in Dallas. Doyle was finally located in Klamath Falls, Oregon. He told his story on camera and was also questioned by the FBI. The FBI and private researchers sought the other two tramps. Gedney was located in Melbourne, Florida, serving as a municipal officer, a respected member of the community who had not spoken about his former life as a vagabond until interviewed by researcher Billy Cox and by the FBI. Both Doyle and Gedney told the same story of spending the night before the assassination at a rescue mission. According to Oliver Revell of the Dallas FBI office, both men commented that they had gotten fresh clothes, showered, shaved, and had a meal. They headed back to the railroad yard and when they heard all the commotion and sirens and everything, and then they asked what had happened, they were told the president had been shot. In 1992, Doyle said that he was aware of the allegations and did not come forward for fear of being implicated in the assassination. He added, I am a plain guy, a simple country boy, and that's the way I want to stay. I wouldn't be a celebrity for $10 million. Gedney independently affirmed Doyle's account, and a researcher who tracked down Abrams' sister confirmed that Abrams lived the life of an itinerant train hopper and had died in 1987. Despite the Dallas Police Department's 1989 identifications of these three tramps as being Doyle, Gedney, and Abrams, and the lack of evidence connecting them to the assassination, some researchers have continued to seek or maintain other identifications for the tramps and to theorize that they may have been connected to the crime. Let's face it, Some researchers will forever find it suspicious that the Dallas police had quickly released the Tramps from custody, apparently without investigating whether they might have witnessed anything significant related to the assassination, and the fact that the police records of their arrests, as well as their mugshots and fingerprints, had also gone missing. Those police reports and documents went missing for so long, it's hard to erase the suspicions around them even today. Some interesting facts about the police reports that surfaced and the policemen that were supposedly involved in this little matter is quite interesting. First, all the arrest forms are signed by one policeman, William Earl Chambers. After these records surfaced, Chambers was interviewed with other officers in 1992 by the FBI. That group of officers who were Ostensibly involved with the handling of the hobos also included Billy Lee Bass, Roy Vaughn, R.C. Wagner, Marvin Wise, David Harkness, uh, whom you heard from a little bit earlier, and William E. Middleton. Billy Bass was the man that turned the men over to a deputy sheriff when they got to the sheriff's office. In Billy's words, they searched no other boxcars After finding these three men, that is not consistent with the Harkness testimony to the Warren Commission, but Bass may not have been aware of all the goings-on that day. Or maybe he was. Harkness probably did know more, as he was in charge of that matter, uh, the search, that is, at that very moment. R.C. Wagner could not recall being involved in any way in the interview of these three tramps. Hmm. Isn't that strange? I just can't believe that. It's hard for me to believe a trained police officer involved with interrogating anyone related to the assassination of the president on that day would forget that. Hmm. William E. Middleton was apparently at home on the day of the assassination and was never involved in the arrests, and yet he is listed on the documents. Hmm. Again. Marvin Wise was said to have written down the names of two of the three tramps on a slip of paper that he put away and stored for a year and then finally got rid of it. But he doesn't remember those names. Hmm. Well, maybe okay on that one. But why would he have the occasion to write that down outside of a police report? Yeah, I guess. Just the craziness of that day. Oh, and Roy Vaughn. Poor Roy Vaughn was involved here too. We have not gotten to him yet in the story, but he was the Dallas policeman guarding the garage entrance to the police department on Sunday morning when Oswald was shot. And within a short time after the shooting, he was implicated by one of his fellow officers as perhaps being the reason that Ruby got into the garage so easily that day and was able to shoot Oswald. He had to live with that one for the rest of his life true or not, and he did vehemently deny it. And finally, none of them remember much of anything about the interrogation of these three men. I mean, if they really were just hobos, would you? See, that's the hard part to challenge on this one. If they were just hobos, then some of this really does make sense. Well, they did ask them if they were hobos, and that was pretty much it. <laughs> Big yawn really uneventful. Now, one part of me wants to react differently here. Geez, they were essentially hiding in the boxcars in the railroad yard, for God's sake, right after the shooting of the President of the United States. I really don't care what you say. This is either really shoddy police work or more is involved here. But undoubtedly, more should have been done and more care should have been taken to explore this more in the hours and days after the assassination as the story developed. These men may have seen something. I mean, if they were not part of it, and for sure they were scared, they wanted no part of being tagged as witnesses to the assassination. I get that, but it matters not. If they saw something, they had an obligation to say something and speak the truth about what they saw. Harkness testified to the Warren Commission that there were other men arrested that day. John F. Elrod was one of them, and he was arrested along the railroad tracks. It was about the same time as the arrest of the three tramps. There was a dispatch regarding a man carrying a rifle who was walking along the railroad tracks. It's documented in the John F. Elrod arrest record that a dispatch went out indicating that a man carrying a rifle was walking along the railroad tracks. Where did that dispatch come from? This is one of the most intriguing evidentiary elements in today's episode. Sitting right there in the arrest record for Elrod is this incredible diamond in the rough. Who phoned that in? How did that information get to the police? What else did the police know about this sighting that is not sitting in the official written records? I would really like for you as a listener to this podcast to go to the blog at www. Podcast com for this episode, episode 50, and you can see the arrest record for Elrod and what was documented in typewritten form. What we just stated is all right there, taken down on November twenty second, 1963. Really, you can't make this stuff up. Leave a comment if you will. By the way, one more outrageous claim that, in my mind, must be substantially discounted as false, but I'll state the claim. Elrod later claimed that he had spent four hours in a cell with Oswald during Oswald's last 48 or so hours there at the jail in captivity. We know that the police kept Oswald in isolated jail cells by himself, so this is highly unlikely, even if nothing more than an exaggeration, as they were likely in the jail at the same time. But what he claimed he heard is actually the more outrageous piece of the story. He claimed that, in that time frame, Oswald disclosed that he knew Jack Ruby. Not a very credible witness, but certainly an incredible claim. I know. Why would Oswald reveal that to a stranger at that moment, before he was murdered by Ruby a very short time later? Sounds like a story made up after the fact by Elrod. Well, that is my story, and I'm sticking to it. This time, I am in agreement with the FBI. Okay, let's wander back and finish up with the three tramps. You would think that would have done it, right? That now there were three positively identified individuals. So that is the end of it. Well, it never works that way, at least not in this case. The speculation just continued. First, people were quite suspicious that it took over 25 years to come up with these missing investigative arrest records. Could it be that they were fabricated? It was an easy excuse to ignore what had been found and continue the speculation about who these men really were. After all, maybe these newly found records were fabricated, but two of the three witnesses had been tracked down and the sister of the third, Gus Abrams, who was now deceased, had also been tracked down. And they all made statements supporting the claim that these three men were indeed the three hobos that day in the plaza. And there was much more investigative reporting that I forgot to touch upon earlier that I'll make a quick wander on now, because it goes to the idea that the news media and not just the authorities also got a chance to run down this story and get what at least one of the tramps had to say firsthand for you as a juror to hear. So stay tuned on that one. In my mind, there are many lingering suspicions, and one of the biggest of them is pretty simple. If these men were arrested in connection with the investigation of President Kennedy's murder, why is there no interrogation record? I just can't believe that if these arrests were done properly, that all of them would not have been placed in a room and heavily interrogated about what happened and how they might have been involved. An interrogation that was certain to happen if this process was on the up and up, and then documented and especially if they stayed four days, as the arrest records say. But we also know that there are some accounts that they were released within minutes of getting to the Sheriff's Department. Chauncey Holt, who I will say more about in a minute, chronicles this in some of his own writings. In other accounts, they stayed only perhaps two days in some cases. But, In any case, they did not stay the full four days as documented in the investigative arrest records. Hmm. If so, then what does that mean? There are other goofy stories, too. In September 1991, a new character arrives on the scene. His name is Charles Rogers. How did he come into the picture? Well, two private investigators, John Craig and Philip Rogers, who were working on a book about an unsolved murder case, claimed that Charles Rogers, who disappeared in 1965 after the dismembered bodies of his parents were found in a refrigerator, was, yes, a CIA operative who was identified by his friends and relatives as one of the tramps. This far-out story was soon squelched. According to the Houston Chronicle, a homicide detective who worked on the original murder case of Rogers' parents Described the scenario as far-fetched. But wait, we are still not done yet. Three months later, in a 1991 Newsweek article about Oliver Stone's JFK, a man named Chauncey Holt received national attention for various claims he made regarding the assassination of President Kennedy, including that he was one of the three CIA operatives photographed as the Tramps. Holt also stated that he was with Harrelson in Dealey Plaza on the day of the assassination. According to Holt, he was ordered to Dallas to deliver phony Secret Service credentials. Wow, doesn't that sound plausible given all the facts we know about phony Secret Service agents in the plaza that day? But Holt claims that he was not involved in killing Kennedy, nor did he have knowledge of who did. John Craig and Philip Rogers' 1992 book, The Man on the Grassy Knoll, eventually connected Charles Harrelson, Charles Rogers, and Chauncey Holt by alleging that they were the three tramps photographed in Dealey Plaza. According to that book, Harrelson and Rogers were sharpshooters on the Grassy Knoll and were assisted by Holt. It's like a Chinese menu. Every book's got a different combination. Oh, I know, it's starting to get a little far fetched. But honestly, don't be so skeptical yet. I think Chauncey Holt deserves more study and might possibly be real. Let's consider meeting him again when we talk about the CIA. I'll wait to see if any of you are listening and say something about it on the blog. And then I have more for you on Chauncey Holt when we get to episodes around possible CIA elements that may be somehow involved in the Kennedy assassination. So let's sum it up one more time. Despite the Dallas Police Department's 1999 identifications of the three tramps as being Doyle, Gedney, and Abrams, some researchers have continued to maintain other identifications for the tramps and to theorize that they may have been connected to the crime. All I am going to say as we near the end of this episode is that Let's revisit this again when we get to the part of the podcast that deals with CIA operatives that could have been involved in some way. That is all I'm going to say for now on this topic. Wow, what a thing to leave behind in the hotel room. (laughs) Like a good shoe, I think. Aren't you glad that I decided to turn around and go back and pick it up? I think this story was worth going back for. Not sure if I could have duplicated this where I am driving to next. And once again, I'm hungry now. So let's stop here and go have a sandwich. See you next in episode 51 as we pivot to the world of criminal forensics and their contribution to the enduring secret.
1: We had nothing to do with it. And I'm telling you the God's an honest truth. We had nothing to do with it. I can say we were both... And I went in front of the jury, and they got six days for vagrancy, vagrancy and turned loose. We went over to the railroad yard. We was going to Fort Worth. And I seen a guy in a railroad. Before we went to the railroad yard, sirens and everything was going on. But like I said, I had nothing to do with it. It will bother me whether you believe me or not. If they want to think I did it, that's up to the individual. Because we never had nothing to do with it. Maybe some people's said were dead now, done passed away. Maybe that's why they open them up now, a little out of time. Maybe somebody who was involved has done passed away. But like I said, the can't have nothing to do with it. Thank you for listening to
0: Episode 50 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.